First Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Peter writes, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ. Thank you, Nate, for reading that passage for us this morning. My name is Russ Ramsey. Again, if we haven't met, I'm the pastor here. It's good to be with you. I'm going to actually read the next three verses in chapter five because it's the rest of the book. And it just feels like, you know, closure. Since this is our last sermon in this book of 1 Peter. He goes on to say, these are just the final greetings. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So this letter one of the things that we've talked about uh, throughout this sermon series has been, we, we've talked about the author. In fact, we started this, this sermon series on Easter Sunday by talking about the life of Simon Peter, his denial of Christ, and then Jesus' reinstatement of him. And it's been very much by design. We've talked about the paintings in the back of the room uh, where Peter is denying Jesus and then where, where he's in, in prison about to be martyred. And I've really wanted to keep those two things together, um, the content of this letter and the life of the person who wrote it. Uh, because this is one of those cases where we actually have a lot of insight into who wrote this letter and what life was like for him and what his relationship with Jesus was like. He's writing to this church that's struggling. 
And they're struggling because they're facing persecution and, and they're in an anxious, a high anxiety situation. They're, they're trying to navigate a complex uh, world that's hostile toward this faith that they've got. And I think about living in a world like the one that we're in now, and some of the things that are similar to then are that in this world, we can face a lot of whiplash in the sense of there are so many voices that are demanding our anger, that are saying, this is what you need to be consumed with anger about. This is where your energies need, your emotional bandwidth needs to be going, what it needs to be consumed by. We have so many opportunities every day to regard other people with distrust or disrespect. We have so many opportunities every single day to decide who's with us, who's against us, who's for us, who doesn't understand us. And the church in Peter's day is struggling every day as they face these myriad of choices for how to live and how to move through a world that is unwelcoming to them. And he's writing this letter to help them navigate what fidelity to Jesus looks like in the midst of that. And one of the things that he's been telling them throughout, he says it again here, is that in the end, Jesus will bring them home. He will rescue them. He will be their comfort. He will be their strength. And what I love about that is he is saying this to them as someone who was a friend of Jesus. He says it here, the way he says it here is that he was a witness to Christ's sufferings. He's reminding us that he was there. He was in the room where it happened, as they say, right? He was a friend of Jesus. And the friendship of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the grace of Jesus are transforming. They're transforming if we look to him as the object of our affection. This passage that we're looking at here, it comes in two halves. The first half deals with elders in the church. It talked about elders in the church. And the second part has to do with, for the whole church, how to kind of live in this anxious world. And so what I want to do is I want to to start with the first part quickly and then spend the bulk of our time talking about worry and anxiety. So notice how, even at this early date, so this is Peter writing to the church. Peter was one of Jesus' disciples prior to the crucifixion. So this is early in the life of the church. Even here, Peter is recognizing that churches have elders. They have men who have been appointed to shepherd the flock, to watch over the church that is under their care, that he's recognizing that there's a role here. Um, And it's it's a biblical concept. So we're a Presbyterian church. We have that. We're a church that is governed by elders who are nominated and then and then uh, appointed uh, and ordained and installed by, by the church to serve in this particular capacity. It's a biblical concept. Um, and it's, but what it, what's important to see, especially that we see it in this passage, is it's not a relationship that is built on the wielding of power, but on the humble and steady exercise of wisdom and maturity and devotion to the Lord in caring for a particular local church community. And so these elders, Peter is saying, you're called to pour yourself in 
to the community that you're a part of, those people. Care for your people, he says, as a shepherd cares for his sheep. How does a shepherd care for sheep? He preserves them. He leads them. He cares about their safety. He lays down his life for them. And he says, do this out of love. Do this out of care. Not for power, not for personal gain, but you lay down your lives for the community that you're a part of, for the community, the church that you lead. Because this role that you have is not a distribution of power, but it's an opportunity for you to use your life experience and your spiritual maturity to care for people who are in that community with you. It's a privilege to serve in this way, he says. And then he talks to the younger people in the church and he says, honor them, honor these leaders. You know, Paul says it this way in another letter. He says, try to make their service a joy and not a burden since that wouldn't be of use to anybody. And then he gives this final word to all of them. He says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Because God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. What we're seeing here is even early on in the young church, that there is not a single power structure in scripture where one party's responsibility is to submit and the other party's responsibility is to use their power however they want. You don't find any systems like that. Nobody is is in a situation where one party has to just submit and the other is free to just abuse their power. In every single case, every single case, all the parties are called to operate with humility and affection for one another, to care for one another, to lay down their lives for one another. That's how it's supposed to work. So even in a church where you have elders and they have positions of authority and their responsibility is to oversee, to govern, and to rule, when those elders are giving their lives for that congregation because they're pouring into the body of Christ and they're asking how they can serve as a way of leading, they're not putting themselves in positions of of control where they're abusing people, but they're putting themselves in positions where they're asking how they can best serve and lead with this calling that the Lord has. And the respect that is meant to flow toward them is based in that, that they are in the process of laying down their lives for the church. And it's not just the church at large, but it's a congregation, a community that they're a part of, that we're looking each other in the eye. And God calls us to this kind of thinking and this kind of living as a part of the body of Christ. It's so easy today to kind of make these general abstractions about large organizations, the institutional church, all of these things. But the way that it's supposed to work is that we're supposed to know each other's names. We're supposed to know each other's struggles. We're supposed to know each other's joys. We're supposed to know the things that are going on in one another's lives so that we can walk with each other and care as a community together. And so that's what he's calling us to here. Even as he's talking about there being elders and people who submit to the elders, that there's this relationship that is meant to be one built on affection and trust and continuing depth of relational connection. And then he goes on to say to the whole church, this second part, uh, and he starts by saying, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Because everybody's asking the question, Lord, we're struggling, we're suffering here, we don't know what's coming, and we don't know if there's going to be any end to the pressure that we're enduring right now. And he says, humble yourselves. 
Don't bow up. Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. And then he says, cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. I love that Peter talks to the church here about anxiety. Some of you know this about me, but I don't think everybody here, I know not everybody here knows this, but I am somebody who struggles with anxiety. I I have pretty intense bouts with anxiety from time to time. I've been a person who has been on medication for anxiety at different times in my life. I know, I know what it feels like to be paralyzed by anxiety. And it happens a couple times a year for me. Sometimes more, sometimes less. To hear Simon Peter, this friend of Jesus, tell me to cast my anxiety on Jesus touches something in my soul for a couple of reasons. First, the Lord is dignifying the struggle of anxiety by naming it in Scripture, saying it's a thing. There's something beautiful about that, acknowledgement of it. We're, we're in an era, when I was a kid, mental health stuff was kind of seen as sort of black box weird, right? You got a problem with your elbow, we got doctors for that. You got a problem with your heart, we got things we can do. But mental health was just kind of seen as weakness. And I, we are in an era right now where that's not the case anymore, and I'm thankful for that. But here... Anxiety is dignified. The struggle is dignified by being named in Scripture. But the second thing is Peter doesn't just shrug and say, well, (laughs) there's nothing you can do about that. You're just going to have to let it own you for a while. No, what he does is he says, take it to Jesus. Take it to Jesus. Cast all your anxiety on him. Why? He answers that question. He said, because Jesus actually cares about you. He cares. He cares about you. Cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you is scripture saying to us, Jesus cares about your struggle with anxiety and he wants you to turn to him with it. He cares about you. Now, I'm going to speculate for a second and I'm telling you I'm speculating I think Peter struggled with anxiety. Let me give you my reasons for this, okay? Um, There were things about his personality that that strikes me as being a, a set that belongs to anxious people. First, Peter was a person who could see poetic beauty and meaning in situations that he was in. He was at the transfiguration. And Peter's the one who said, Something's happening. We need to commemorate this. We need to memorialize this somehow. We should set up something. He didn't understand what was happening, but there was something in him that knew something deeper is happening than what I understand. And that's part of the personalities of anxious people, is that we understand that there's something beneath what we're seeing, and we want to understand what's happening beneath what we're seeing. I told you I'm speculating. The second is... Peter was the one who dared to get out of the boat and walk with Jesus on the water. That there's this kind of mix of courage that then melted into fear in the moment when he began to sink. That is the behavior of 
all the anxious people I've ever known, is there's a willingness to risk and also a fear that can set on like a wave. But then also we see here how he's writing these words at the end of his life and he's telling the church, do something with the anxiety that you feel. And what is he doing? He's parroting, he's, he's, he's kind of paraphrasing Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which he would have been there for. He would have heard this teaching a number of times, but in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, do not be anxious about your life. And then what follows that statement is just dripping with mercy. Because what he says is this, he says, you know the birds? God feeds them. And the reason he feeds them is because they matter to him. And then he talks about the flowers that color the Judean hillsides in spring. And he says, they don't spin, they don't toil, they just grow. And the reason they grow is because God delights to watch them grow. He makes them grow. He's the gardener. And then Jesus says to us, don't you understand that you matter so much more to him than these? Peter would have heard that sermon at least once, but so many times that he could recite it. But Peter also knew what it was like to be in a very stressful, extended situation that would bring anxiety to anyone. I mean, when you think of what he experienced as a follower of Jesus Christ, it's this, that for a significant portion of his time as a follower of Jesus Christ, Jesus was regarded as a political criminal. And there were religious leaders and political leaders who wanted him gone. And every day that Peter spent with Jesus was a day where they had to wonder what was going to happen next. And you spend time like that in this place where the person that you're with every single day is wanted for introducing ideas that seem to threaten the stability of the fragile peace between Israel and Rome. And you try to track that day in and day out and figure out where you are and how things are going and whether you're safe or not. And that is going to get to you at a certain point. And we saw it get to Peter. When Jesus is arrested and is warming himself, Peter is outside by the fire as Jesus is being tried and hit And he's asked, aren't you one of his disciples? And he just collapses in on himself. He can't go any further here. Even after the reinstatement on the shores of Galilee, he carries this burden into his leadership for the church as a kind of a worry. We see it in Galatians when the apostle Paul confronts Peter for favoring the Jews over the Gentiles. What was Peter doing? He's trying to manage something that's complicated and he's not sure how to do it. He's trying to navigate something. And so he fails in this sense of just caring about what people think. His mind is processing and processing. And so here Peter says to the church these words, and as he says these words, understand that he's not just saying them as a theologian. He's saying them as a person who was a friend of Christ who looked him in the eye when Jesus said, you're going to deny me before this night is over. And he said, these other guys might, I never will. And then he did. And he looked Jesus in the eye when the risen Lord looked at him and said, do you love me? Three times. And he said, yeah, yes. You You know this denier loves you. That guy 
goes on here to tell this church near the end of his own life. He says, the devil is prowling around like a hungry lion and he wants to devour you. But what he says next, I love. He doesn't say, you walk in victory over the devil. Instead, he says something much more gentle. He says, resist him. Resist him. That's the language of dependence. That's a call to people who don't feel strong. Just resist. You don't have to vanquish. Just resist. Now, I may not know how to completely triumph over my own anxiety all the time, but I know some things I can do to resist it. I know that when it comes, if I turn to spiritual disciplines like time in Scripture, writing in a prayer journal, spending time around other believers who know me and love me, being a regular part of the body of Christ, that the Lord uses those things to cut the anxiety down. I know he does. He always does. Not always completely, but I know that he gives us resources to use to resist the power. And then Peter says something else that I love. I I love the way that he just kind of layers the stuff in. He says at the end, listen, cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. The devil's trying to destroy you. Just resist him. And then he says, also know that you're not unique in this. When you worry, when you suffer, he says, listen, what's happening to you is happening to believers all over the world. But he says, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong and firm. Now think, Simon Peter saying the words, Christ, after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you? That's autobiographical. He's describing what has happened to him. Jesus, after I suffered for a little while, I denied him. He himself restored me. And he's made me strong and firm and steadfast. Peter's not just being a theologian here. He's being a friend of Jesus. He knows Jesus He knows what his friend means to do. The single greatest bit of application that any of us in this room could take from a passage like this is be a friend of Jesus. Spend time with him. Spend time in his word. Peter sees what's happening with so much clarity. And I have to imagine that when he wrote the words, Christ, after you have suffered for a little while, will himself restore you, that he wrote those words with a smile on his face. Because he was thinking about when it happened to him and how it's going to happen again for him. We have reason to believe that Jesus takes care of us. On what basis? Well, He cares for the birds and the flowers. And we're more precious to him than these things. This can be hard when we have to recognize that Jesus isn't talking about God providing for us luxuries. He's talking about food and shelter, you know, clothing, basic essentials, daily bread. 
But we are to trust God for these things rather than look to worry and look to anxiety because it will fail us. How will it fail us? Here are three ways that anxiety fails. One is it's, it's foolish in the biblical sense of the word foolish, meaning it's simple-minded. Behind our tendency to anxiety and worry lies a belief, no matter how well-reasoned out, it's this belief that we should be able to control what happens in our lives. And you just can't control what happens in your life. In fact, Scripture tells us that's foolishness. You can't control what happens in your life. In fact, Jesus asks a rhetorical question in the Sermon on the Mount here as he goes on. He says, what, what can you actually add to your life by worrying? The brilliance of the question lies in how it exposes worry's inability to do anything. While at the same time showing us that we do have this foolish, simple-minded tendency to think that feeling this feeling and then acting in response to this feeling can somehow bring about an external change in the world around us. Jesus is saying, you can't add a minute to your life by worrying, and you can't worry provision into existence. Somebody's just going to have to provide for you. And that leads to the next way worry and anxiety fails, is it's ultimately idolatrous. It reveals that we are worshiping a different God. Because beneath the simplicity of folly lies this indication of an allegiance to a false God. By revealing this commitment of the heart to personal worldly security that runs so deep that it rules. It rules your emotional life. It rules your spiritual life to the extent that you judge God when he fails to do what is so plain to you the thing he should have done. We wouldn't do that if we didn't presume that we had some sort of equity with him or superiority over him. We wouldn't call him to account. And in this, we believe somehow that we're entitled to a relatively easy life. We talked about that last week. There's so many verses that just indicate the opposite for Christians. This world is going to be hard. It's broken. My professor in seminary, Dan Doriani, said this. He said, Jesus promises God's care, not a carefree life. The pursuit of a carefree life when what we're actually promised is God's care, can be a strong indicator that we're rebelling against his lordship because instead of living to serve him, we want him to serve us. And that right there is the heartbeat of idolatry. And that's the demand that worry makes, that anxiety makes. Finally, worry is just dishonest. We live in a culture that tells us if you feel something, it must be true. But when Jesus tells us not to worry, he's telling us, refuse to nurture that emotion. <laughs> You're not allowed to do that now. If you have a feeling, you have to nurture it. You have to push on the bruise. You have to. Or you're not being authentic. But here, Jesus is saying, mm-mm, mm-mm. You don't have to nurture every emotion that you feel. Why? Because not every emotion you feel is telling you things that are true. Worry tells us a simple lie, in fact. Patrick Curry, who's a J.R.R. Tolkien scholar, he said this about worry. He said actually about despair. Worry is a subset of despair. He said this. Despair is for people who know beyond any doubt 
what the future is going to bring. And nobody is in that position. So despair, he says, is not only a kind of sin theologically, but, it, but also just a simple mistake. Because nobody actually knows. And in that sense, there is always hope. So worry insists certain things to be true that you have no honest way of knowing that they're true. Some looming disaster. And in that sense, it's dishonest. So worry fails us because it's foolish, it's idolatrous, it's dishonest. So what do we do instead? We embrace the connection between God's call to not worry and his promise that he is king over our lives. Seek first his kingdom and everything else will follow. The basis of the Sermon on the Mount is that believers are not citizens of this world. We're citizens of the kingdom of God. Peter, throughout this whole letter, has been emphasizing this truth. Your citizenship doesn't lie here. And this is not a metaphor for Jesus. Jesus does not consider the citizenship thing to be a metaphor, a way to think. No. Our citizenship isn't with this world. It really is with God in Christ. When you're in Christ, your citizenship in God's kingdom carries greater validity than any passport you've ever held. It guarantees more rights. It delivers more security than anything this world could ever give you. You have a provider. I have a provider. And here's the thing about that provider. He happens to be the maker and the sustainer of the universe. That's who our provider is. And he's not only the only provider you've ever had, but he's the only provider you ever will have. Your work, your spouse, your inheritance, a lottery ticket, your children's success, your own ambition and industry, none of these have ever been your provider. God alone takes care of you. And so you may be now wondering, okay, well then, when is he going to come through for me? And if that is your question, can you handle a gentle, loving rebuke? When is he going to come through for you? Has he not already? Let me just name three things he has given This list could go on and on and on, but let me list three. He's given you his word to guide and to correct and to encourage you. He has given you his son, Jesus, who paid the penalty for your sin in full by offering himself on the cross for you. He's given that to you, his word and his son. Third, he's given you his Holy Spirit to live in the hearts of those who believe, empowering us to live as his followers by his grace and for his glory. What has he given us? He's given us his word. He has not been silent. He's given us his son. He has responded to what's broken in the world and broken in us and redeemed us. He's given us his spirit, the power that enables us to live as his followers day in and day out. So where are you seeking personal security? 
then if not in him? Jesus says, don't worry, and then he tells us why. You're just more precious to God than the birds and the flowers. Are you desperate for help? Seek first his kingdom and God's righteousness. Resist in that way. Through scripture, prayer, believing friends, everything else will follow. Peter's seen this. Jesus gives the birds what they need, and he loves you more. He adorns the flowers, but you're more beautiful to him than these. And the world will be in your ear saying, no, be angry and worry. You should be worried. Why are you not worried? You should be very, very, very worried. When the world cries worry, don't. Because all you have needed, his hand has provided. Great is his faithfulness. Trust him. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered for a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this letter, and I thank you for the biographical information that we have about the one who wrote it under your Spirit's leading, that we understand when he talks about anxiety and he talks about suffering and he talks about the end of things and the kingdom of heaven, that we're reading from a person who walked with you prior to the cross, who saw your miracles, who failed you and saw you restore and redeem and make him strong and steadfast. Father, we thank you for this because the love that you have for Simon Peter is not greater than the love that you have for any of us because you love perfectly. And so, Lord, help us to rest in that. Help us to cast our anxiety on you. Help us to trust that you care for us. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.